Welcome to Recovery is Possible, a weekly podcast exploring the opioid crisis through personal stories and interviews with individuals, families, and community members. This podcast is brought to you by the Sandhills Opioid Response Consortium, funded through the HRSA Federal Office of Rural Health Policy. In Episode 3, Jason's Story, we're talking to Peer Support Specialist Jason Applegate. Jason shares his story about two compassionate and empathetic law enforcement officers and how wisdom through the judicial system changed his life. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, I know a little bit about your story. You've been in recovery now for 13 years? Yeah, going on 13 years. 2007, I got, uh, is when I officially started counting. I was clean earlier than that, but I was in prison, so I don't really count that. But yeah, 2007 is when it really started for me. Was prison when you went through like rehab or? No, uh, prison this time was just cold turkey. Uh, I mean, there's a lot before that, but yeah, no, there was no treatment on this one. How did that feel? Good. I asked to go to prison. Um, I'd been out there using so long and so out of control. I was at that point in time in my life, I was homeless. I was living in a graveyard. I mean, I was 125 pounds. I had a blood clot in my leg and I was at the end of my rope. And uh, I think I was one more bad day away from taking my life at that point in time. I'd given up on everything. My family didn't want to talk to me. I didn't have any friends left. I burned every bridge that was possible. I mean, I did horrific things to keep using, but uh, I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. So when I was arrested and uh, the judge offered me probation for like the umpteenth millionth time, I told him no, that I needed to go to prison because that was the only way I could break the cycle. You know, I'd been through a dozen treatment centers, you know, countless times on probation. And I knew that the only way I could do it was to get away from everything and everyone for a good period of time. And uh, I think it was the first time a judge had anyone asked to go to prison, you know, when he was getting ready to let him walk out of the courtroom. And, uh, but that was the only way I could do it. And, uh, I went to prison about a year and a half. I mean, you could always find something in prison, but I was already had made my mind up that I was done and I wasn't going to go back to that life anymore. And then I got out in 2007, and that's when it all really started for me with uh, maintaining my sobriety and staying clean and, you know, finding out how, how hard it really is in the real world. It's easy staying clean in prison, you know. You know, you don't have to worry about thinking about stuff because you're in there, you're just stuck. But when you get out to the real world, it's when it really starts. When did you start using drugs? Um, I had smoked weed and stuff, 
maybe when I was 12, 13. But um, I started using heroin when I was 14. Uh, my father uh, was involved with a motorcycle club. Uh, I grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And um, my family was deeply involved in a motorcycle club up there. Uh, my dad and all my uncles. And um, those were guys were my heroes growing up. I wanted to be them. They were the coolest guys ever. Tattoos, motorcycles, fast cars, everything. That was me. I was signing up for that. But um, a couple of the younger guys in the club decided that uh, they'd take me out and uh, give me some heroin. Since I wanted to be cool like everybody else, I didn't. I thought that was, hey, that's what these guys do. It's what I, I, I grew up seeing that, you know. And uh, it wasn't really hidden from me on my dad's side of the family. On my mom's side of the family, it was different. Uh, Did your dad know you were doing that? No. My dad knew I smoked weed and uh, drank a little bit and stuff. That was okay with them, you know. As what would your dad have thought if he had known about the heroin? He probably would have just smacked me around a little bit and told me to knock it off. And that would have been it. You know? But uh, it was a different time. And, you know, now you can't do stuff like that. But the guys I looked up to took me out and got me high when I was 14. And uh, that was probably the first time I felt good about myself I felt okay inside my skin you know I felt like I was on top of the world I was fitting in with these guys and that became my perception of reality that's what you know the world was supposed to look like and feel like to me and um, I started I was 14 and I had a stack of felonies already at 14 I was stealing cars uh, me and a crew of guys uh, we'd steal cars at, from the casinos, long-term parking, and we'd take them to Philadelphia and sell them or trade them for drugs or money. I mean, I got kicked out of school for using PCP in school. I mean, um, I graduated high school, but I think they just wanted me gone is really it. And that's... I started, man, when I was 14, it was on. That was it. I found it. That was my calling, I thought. You know, I was going to be just like everybody else in the club. What did your parents, how did they respond? I mean, with the felonies and the... My dad was the boys being boys motto, the club and stuff, you know, smack me in the back of the head, tell me knock it off. And my parents were divorced. Their parents divorced when I was young. I was like five years old. And, uh, my mom remarried. And um, their house was really strict. I was constantly grounded. Couldn't do anything. And then the weekends would come and I'd go to my dad's and hang out with everybody over there. And my mom was furious. And, um, yeah. Uh, it took plenty of... Uh, 
butt weapons and backhands and stuff like that. But I was already out of control. And um, she did the best she could. I mean, they worked all the time trying to support us and stuff. And I had to run in my life, you know. If I went to school, I went to school. If I skipped, I skipped. You know, there was no one around to stop me or check in on me. Or I mean, my mom was frustrated with me. You know, she wanted me to be different than my father. You know, and then she'd see so much of me or so much of him in me, it would drive her nuts. You know, and the same with my stepfather. He didn't like my dad. He didn't like my dad's family, you know. So every time I acted out or did stupid stuff, they, all they saw was my father or my uncle, you know. And they just blamed them for everything. Did it feel, it must have felt like they didn't like you because you were part of your father. Yeah, it definitely felt like yeah. that. If, definitely growing up, I really felt like uh, my family took out their anger with my father on me, you know, growing up. You know, and it's, it was tough, and that just drove me further into using whatever I could, you know, to let myself feel okay about things. And, um, I mean, there were some dark times there and family's not perfect, but I love them. You know, they stuck with me through everything, never turned their back on me. They, uh, called me, uh, loving from a distance I could call. And that was it. It's all the contact they'd have with me when I was out there. But my childhood, I grew up in a nice home in a really nice neighborhood. You know, I just was on a different path, I guess. You know, I saw the motorcycle guys, and that was it. I was hooked on that. What did you do after high school? Um, I graduated high school, and I was getting in trouble constantly, fighting all the time. I mean, every weekend I was getting picked up for fighting or something. And um, a judge intervened and said that I was either going to go to prison or I was going to do a military stint. And he gave me the option. And I chose the military. Of course, I didn't want to go to prison. Um, so I tested and uh, went into the Air Force. And uh, wound up going in and becoming a combat controller. Air Force Special Forces units. I worked with JSOC and the military was great. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I had structure, you know, I had boundaries, I had everything. You know, I do great with rules, you know, but as soon as I'm left to my own devices, I so the military was great. I traveled a lot. And there was also a lot of times that a lot of bad, bad stuff happened while I was in the military. I, uh, I volunteered and went to Bosnia and saw the worst in humanity. I was there for the genocides and uh, to see what 
people could do to each other just because they were simply a different religion was horrible, horrible. When we were tasked with hunting the warlords that were doing it all. It's just, it was just a really rough time. And then there was no help for it when I came back. It was deal with it, man up, suck it up, on to the next thing. Uh, made the mistake of asking for help once because uh, I, I was going into a really bad depression. And uh, they sent me to a doctor and the doctor, before I even got in, said, you know, if you go through with this, you'll lose your worldwide qualification. And I didn't want that, you know, I didn't want to be stuck behind a desk somewhere working in a chow hall or something. That wasn't me. So I just I told him, I'm okay. You know, he said, that's what I thought. And that was the end of my help in the military. What were some of your symptoms? I didn't sleep. Uh, I had horrific nightmares, night terrors. Randomly out of the blue. And uh, it was, uh, I was just, not okay. I was not okay being around people. And, uh, yeah, I was just didn't know how to deal with, you know, everything that uh, I had gone through and seen. Did you, did other people around you seem to have the same? There was a few people. Did you guys talk about it? Not really. It was, uh, it was no one wanted to admit that they were having problems, you know, it was the tough guy code and all that, you know, sit there and cry at night and then act like everything's fine, and, you know, the next morning. And uh, that's pretty much, you. everybody drank mm -hmm. constantly and I couldn't because I'm allergic to alcohol. I mean, I can get through it, but it's, it's not easy to do. So there was times when it was real bad and I would drink, I'd just guzzle a bottle of vodka and as fast as I could before I had a reaction to it. And that's how I dealt with things back then. You know, I, I didn't have any coping skills. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was going on with me really, you know, about the PTSD and the night terrors and the flashbacks and all that, you know, I, I was scared to say anything. They locked me up, you know, put me in a psych ward or something. So I just stuffed it down, you know, that's what I was taught to do. You know, men don't cry. That was my family upbringing and how wrong that was. When you were young, you felt like you belonged with your with the motorcycle mm -hmm. club and those men. And then it sounds like you felt like you belonged in the military, too. Yes. And so there's this, in both circumstances, you had this dichotomy of feeling like you belonged, but in a situation that was hard on you, had a lot of trauma. Yeah, both of them. And so you didn't want to lose that sense of belonging. No, that was... But you also didn't know how to deal with the side effects of being part of groups where you had 
Yeah, trauma. And so I when I could take leave, any chance I got, I'd go home to New Jersey or wherever I could and I, I would use for a couple days, you know, and just try to get it all out and come back and try to be okay again. Did they ever test you? And yeah, one time uh, I went to my boss. Oh, God, it was Sergeant Tipton, I think his name was. And I said, Tip, I can't do it. They called me down for a random UA. I was like, I can't go. He's like, well, you got some time. I said, no, Tip, you don't understand. I can't go, you know. And uh, he pulled me outside and uh, talked to me. He said, uh, is this a one-time thing? I said, yeah. He said, it won't happen again? I said, no. And uh, he made it go away, you know. He just enabled the process to continue, you know. It would have wrecked my standing in the military, but it also probably would have helped me at the same time, you know. Well, it just depends on what side you're looking at, I guess. So how long did you serve in the military? Uh, eight years was my uh, total, and I wish I'd have stayed. I really wish I would have stayed, but I was, it was going back to the desert again and I wanted a break. Do you think that you identified then that you needed the structure? Oh yes, yeah. definitely. <clears throat> I've always done well and exceeded when there's structure in my life, you know, whether it be a, a treatment center or the military or, you know, even staying when I stayed with my family. You know, there was structure there, and I excel, everything's okay. It's almost like I'm relieved that all the decisions are already made for me, you know? It makes it easier on me. But it took me a long time to realize that that's, you know, me, and I need that in my life. Even now, I struggle, you know, when it's not there, and I try to self-imposed structure on myself and do things at a certain time and wake up at a certain time. Just little things like that help now, you know, to keep me focused and on the straight and narrow. I also really struggle if I don't have structure. And I think that people glorify multiple decisions and choice and all that. I'm working from home now due to COVID. It's hard. Oh, yeah. It's, I think yeah. a lot of people need structure, consistency, routine, and it's not glamorous. No. But it's what we need to thrive. Oh, yeah. I definitely need it. And uh, we just, uh, me and my family had a conversation actually last night because I've been real down and blue lately. Mom's like, you need to get back to work. You need to get back to this. She's like, you were doing so well. And I'm like, it takes me. It still takes me a minute to figure out what's going on with me, but at least now I'm able to look at what I'm doing and realize what the issue is and then take action against it, you know, to in a positive way instead of just trying to cover it up and numb it. You know, that'll, that'll fix everything. So there was a lot of growth these last 13 years, you know, and actually really, I'd say the last five or six years it's in the most growth 
So after you left the Air Force, what did you do? I came came undone is what I did. I uh, I got out and I was just lost. I, I mean, part of me didn't want to go back to New Jersey. And my family was living in North Carolina down here in Pinehurst at the time. So I came here and I floated around, just didn't know what to do. And I met somebody who was opening uh, a business up. Uh, skateboards and wakeboards and surfboards, clothing and stuff, a board shop. And uh, they had all the money, but didn't have any of the contacts or know anything. And I knew people in the industry. Uh, a bunch of my friends from growing up had turned pro in different areas, motocross and stuff. And I stayed in touch, so I had the contacts. So we decided to go into business together. You know, he would front money. He was having a midlife crisis at the time, so he wanted to hang out with all the young kids. So he just threw money my way and let me build his business up. And then he gave me money to open my own skate park up, which I did as a nonprofit 401c, you know, and it was great, you know, but like everything else, left to my own devices. I met a girl who used heroin. I didn't know she used heroin at the time. She hit it extremely well, even for me. But uh, I started finding needles and baggies around the house. And I'd throw holy fits. I'd freak out because I didn't want to go back. You know, I didn't want to do that. You know, I was really close to being happy. And uh, I can only say no so many times before you give in. And it was an extremely, extremely bad relationship with her. She was abusive, violent. I mean, this girl broke my arm <laughs> intentionally in a car door just because she was angry. I mean... But uh, within a year, I'd lost everything, the business, everything, money. I mean, we had boats, cars, skate park, everything was gone. But my boss was using, I was selling to him, his wife. And then I, I decided I broke off with the girl and I was trying to do my best to get clean on my own. And my old boss was calling me up, wanting me to get him drugs. I was done with it and I wasn't doing it. So he was getting mad because I was the only person he knew that could get him drugs. And one day the police knock on my door with a warrant for my arrest for forged checks on our business account. And he took my name off of it and I didn't know it. And there's all kinds of times where He'd forget to sign a check or just leave checks there for me to sign for UPS or whatever. And I'd call him up and he'd be like, just sign it. Well, he used that against me. Wow. Yeah. But I wound up in jail and on probation. And with my, I went back to using after that, you know, I was just angry and fed up and, and 
again, not knowing how to deal with all these emotions and stuff going on in my life, I, I turned to what I knew, which was heroin. And um, I went back to using. I, now I'm living with my parents again. They're trying to get me help. I'm going to treatment to make them happy. You know, it'll last a month or two. And I'd be back out using again, trying to keep it under control, keep it under control for a week or two. And then the wheels would come off and I'd be on a tear. I mean, I took so much from my family. It's, it was ridiculous. Um, they'd have me locked up and I'd get out on probation and start to cycle. It was just a vicious, vicious cycle self-destruction and every time it just got worse i get clean go to treatment get out you know might put up 90 days at the best and then fall off and it would just be terrible a terrible terrible tear using all the time stealing whatever i could when you were using at that point did it even feel good? No, but it kept me from being sick and it was the only way I could sleep. So it was, it was no longer about having fun and enjoying life. Cause there was times when I used, I had fun. I did. I mean, there's no way anybody says they didn't lying because it starts out being fun. Otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. But at that point it was, it was my full-time job it was finding money, finding a way, you know, to get money, getting the drugs, using, and then starting all over again for the next day. Just trying to get enough to make it through the day to the next day. Were you worried about yourself? No, I was on a self-destructive tear. I didn't care what happened at that point. You know, I was just, miserable i recently went back and uh i had a journal back then i've always journaled since i was a kid and i went back i found one of my journals in storage at my mom's and uh i was able to read about three pages of it before i put it down and couldn't read anymore i was in so much pain back then and so angry it was it was bad but it still wasn't enough to get me to stop for good, you know, I wound up in jail on probation, and um, they sent me to a 90-day program. I breezed through that. I could tell them everything they wanted to hear at this point. You know, I've been going to treatment since I was 14. I knew every word, every thing they needed to hear. You know, and be a superstar in every treatment center I went to. I breezed through the 90-day program, and the day before I was supposed to graduate and go home, my counselor calls me down, and uh, he said, um, you need to call your family and tell them not to bother coming to get you tomorrow. I thought it was some kind of joke. And he said, uh, no, your probation officer is going to come pick you up. And I said, well, why is she coming to pick me up? I graduated, you know. So they decided that you need some more treatment. And uh, 
they're going to send you to a two-year inpatient program. Needless to say, I was not happy about that. Did but, you go? Yeah, yeah, they sent me to one up to Trosha in Durham. And uh, I did the interview. And towards the end of the interview, they asked me who the two people in the waiting room were. Were they my family? And I said, no, they're my probation officers. And they said, were you being forced to come here? And I said, well, yeah. So I just graduated DART yesterday, and they're making me come here today. And they said, get out. We don't want you here. If you don't want to be here, we don't want you here. So my probation officer thought I intentionally tanked the interview, so she threw me in jail. Do you wish that you had done that program? No, uh, because... She gave me a couple days to think about it, and then she told me that I had to find another long-term treatment center that they were going to activate my prison time. So I wound up going to Asheville, up to First Incorporated, up in Black Mountain, another two-year inpatient program, which was great. You know, another. I, of course, I did great there. There was structure. There was rules. There was you know everything I needed to keep me on the straight and narrow was back in play. You know, so I did good there. I, I was doing great. I met a woman uh, that I had met previously years and years ago. Uh, it was all man treatment center I was at. It wasn't co-ed, but we'd go out to meetings during the week. And uh, at a meeting, I saw this girl that I knew from before. I recognized her and, uh, you know, we got to talking and we weren't supposed to date in there while we're in the treatment center, but I wound up being able to date. <laughs> I manipulated and did what I did best to get what I wanted. And, uh, I graduated that program in eight months, the two year program. And then they made me a staff member. During this time, I was dating the girl and we decided that we were gonna get married. She had maybe, I don't know, six months clean. I was just over a year at that point from being at DART and then going to First Incorporated. And uh, the treatment center said, no way. If you follow through with this, we're not, you can't work here anymore because we know what's going to happen and we don't want to see this train wreck that's going to go down. So me being myself, um, you guys don't know nothing. Screw you. I'm out of here. I'm getting married, you know, and we got married. And uh, it was great. She was an amazing woman. You know, we did great. We lived part-time in Asheville and part-time in Topsail Beach. Uh, I had a friend that was in prison, had a house down there, so we'd watch the house for him. But we were spoiled, you know. I was doing good at that time. My family was happy with me, so, you know, we got whatever we wanted. You know, one day I decided to bring some pills into the house. 
much today. That's one of those moments that you can look back on and know it changed everything in your life. Just that one moment, that one day just changed everything. She got mad at me, told me to get him out of the freaking house. So I just ate him. I said, fine. And um, now she was in the shoes I was in not too long ago, trying to say no while I'm bringing drugs around. She gives in, of course, you know. And uh, we went on a tear through Asheville, that's for sure. You know, it was rough. Uh, she was on probation. I was on probation. And uh, she ended up getting, violating her probation. And she was from Atlanta. So they sent her back to Atlanta to do her time. So now I'm in Asheville. No structure in my life. No wife. Everything's coming apart, and I decided then that that was it. I was done. I'm going on one last big tear, and whatever happens, happens. And it was as low as I've ever been in my life. I was going through this time. I manipulated, I blackmailed, I did whatever I could to get money. I conned, I conned churches. I mean, I'd do anything I could to get money. And I was a really good forger and ran a lot of scams on banks for a while. And um, I wound up getting checks from a church and changing routing numbers around and stuff. And I, the church that I got married in. They trusted me, and I turned it around on them. I can see that, on your face how much that bothers you. Yeah, that that's one of those. Even though we, we've talked, and they said they've forgiven me, it's me forgiving myself that's the hard part. You know? But, yeah, it was a really bad time. I lost, we lost our home cars I sold a car $15,000 car for 500 bucks one night and uh, it gets to the point where I was in and out of jail again they kept adding my probation on I just I didn't understand it every time I'd go in I expect to go to prison and they'd let me go I guess that's the system, you know, they can get some money out of you, though. Who was bailing you out? Who was? I wasn't. They'd never give me bail. Mm. I'd sit there for 30 days, go to court. They'd extend my probation and let me go. I was always on hold with no bail because I had out-of-state ties. And I, they knew I wouldn't show up to a court date. So during the 30 days, you must have had withdrawals. Oh, yeah. I'd be sick as a dog laying there on the floor. Did you ever think during those 30 days, 
this is terrible. I don't want to do this again. Yeah. And then I'd think about what I was going to do when I got out, you know, I, I was just in a really bad place and I wasn't in a mind space to think about recovery. That was the furthest thing from my mind. You know, I didn't want to recover. I just wanted to stop the pain. You know, I didn't want to feel like that anymore. So even though I knew that it was only temporary, I was racing back to the drugs. I couldn't get there fast enough. They let me go. And before I even call my family to let them know I was out, I was calling my dealer, asking them to come meet me somewhere. Did you ever have dealers try to refuse to sell to you or try to say, hey, looks like you're in one. bad shape? Yeah, I had one. Uh, this older lady. She tried. She tried to get me to slow down. I think it was, she just didn't want to me dead on her hands is what it was but she tried and she's also one of the people that set me up but <laughs> I um, get arrested I'm in Buncombe County Jail in Asheville and I had charges in another county Hendersonville right next to Buncombe County up there and Hendersonville comes and picks me up from Buncombe County I'm on hold with no bail in Asheville, Hendersonville comes and picks me up. I go to court there. They say, okay, we're just going to tack on this charge to your probation you already have, and we're going to send you back to Asheville. Fine. Uh, they go to court. They bring me back to the jail. I'm sitting there waiting for dinner, and they come tell me to get my stuff. I'm leaving. I said, what do you mean? I said, Asheville's coming to get me already? They said, no, you're released. I said, no, I have pending charges in Asheville still. And he said, paperwork says probation, you're released. I said, man, you really need to check that. Because I didn't want to get halfway out and then jerk me back in. And he said, no, dude, get your stuff and go. It's, you need, I said, all right. I said, I need a copy of my release papers then. And that was the only thing that saved my butt because they had me on TV for the Mountains Most Wanted for an escape. Wow. <laughs> See my smiling face on TV every night. <laughs> and um, I didn't try to hide. I was all over. I walked into jail and signed somebody out on bond. I talked to police all the time. I guess they never expected someone that they were looking for like that to be up there talking to them and just nonchalant hanging out. But I end up becoming homeless. Uh, the people I was staying with, uh, it was the drug dealer's family. I was staying with them. Um, they put me out. I'm living in a graveyard. At night, it was the safest place to be. It was a big old gated, locked up at night graveyard. And I stayed there for a few months. One night, uh, the police roll in and I figured they're there to arrest me, chase me out, something. 
and uh, I just sat there. I mean, I was whatever happens happens. I wasn't gonna try to run. I was in no shape. I was 125 pounds, blood clot in my leg. You know, I looked like looked like I belonged in the graveyard. And the officer asked me, "Is is there anything we can do for you? You know, can we get you something to eat, something to drink? You know, you need a blanket." You know, uh, and that put me on guard. I've never had a police officer at, you know, ask me if I needed help or what they could do for me or, and, and I was, I was shocked and I didn't trust them because that's just the way I was raised not to trust them. And I just stay, kept my distance, told them, nah, I'm good. You know, just wanted them to leave as soon as he could. A couple nights later, here they come again, the two of them. Same thing, except they brought me some food. You know, is there someone we can call for you? You know, reach out to? You know, you need a ride somewhere? It was, to me, it was absolutely insane. They wanted something. You know, I have warrants for my arrest all over the place, and they're talking nice to me and trying to help me. It didn't make any sense. Not in my head, anyway. You know, it's not the way the police act in my world. <laughs> the world I was raised in, anyway. So I just told them, no, thank you. And it was a week later. At this point, I don't care if I make it to the next day. I was, I was done. I was absolutely done. I had no more will left, no more strength, nothing. I just, I wanted the pain to stop completely. I, I didn't have the strength anymore to push through it, to get around it, to deal with it. The drugs weren't working anymore. And uh, those cops came in, same thing. Anything we could do for you, help you with. They said, man, there's got to be somebody we can call for you. We get you some help. And I said, officers, my name is Jason Applegate. I'm on the mountains most wanted. And I need you to take me to jail. If you don't take me to jail, I'm not going to make it through the week. They said, we know who you are. He said, we were just trying to get you to say you wanted help for yourself. And uh, he said, we've been keeping an eye on you. We knew you weren't going anywhere. Uh, I had all kinds of stuff on me. I had drugs on me, needles on me. I had a ton of felonies sitting in my pocket. They took them, put them in the trash can. They said, you're in enough trouble. You don't need any more. You know, Took me to the store, got me something to eat, me drink, let me get cleaned up. Uh, took their time, let me have a cigarette before we went in. The nicest guys, the nicest police I've ever met in my life. Those guys changed my life that day. And everything I do now is because of what they did then. And I went to jail and, uh, the magistrate couldn't believe it. He asked me how I got out of Hendersonville jail. You know, it's like six 
the locked doors. And I held on to that paper, my release papers in my wallet because I knew the day was coming. And I gave him to my release papers. And he said, this right here is the only thing that's going to save you. He said, someone tried to cover their butt for messing up and letting you go. And I uh, sat in jail, sick as a dog, but it was different this time. The withdrawal was different. It's hard to explain. It was, I was going through it. Same as always. But it wasn't as terrible. The mental part wasn't on me every day. You know, I wasn't constantly thinking about going to get high or how I was going to get high. And if I could get pills from somebody in there, something changed. And I think it was when I became willing to change and wanting something different in my life that it just turned the switch on me. I wound up going before the judge and telling him I need to go to jail, send me to prison. And I, he was confused. He thought I was being a smart ass. And I explained to him that I, I, I have a heroin problem and I can't stop on my own. I've tried treatment. And the probation officer is there trying to get me put back on probation. He's like, well, Jason's not failing drug tests or anything like that. I said, I told him, I said, I bring in pee every time. But I went to prison. And uh, because of those officers, when I went to prison, there's not a lot to do in prison. You can either sit around and, and talk about how great everything was out there in the world and how badass you were and all this and how much drugs you did where you can try to better yourself. And there wasn't a lot of opportunities for that in prison, but they had the GED program. So I signed up to help tutor the guys in that. And that was the first time I felt good about myself and forever helping those guys. And now, you know, I went through all that and got out. And that's when my recovery started, you know, the first day I stepped out. When you got out, were you scared? I was terrified. First off, I didn't, even though it was only about a year and a half, my family took me to Walmart because nothing fit me anymore. I'd gotten healthy and worked out, and, you know, the whole time I was in there. So I needed clothes. And first time at Walmart, I freaked out. I had to get out of the store. I couldn't stand being around people like that, people being walking around behind me. And, I mean, that short amount of time, I was starting to become institutionalized. You know, and I look at these guys that have been in there 10, 20 years, you know, You'll never be the same again. But I was terrified when I came out. What was your biggest fear? Going back. Really? Yep. Uh, I did not want to go back to that, even to this day. That's one of the things that still stays in, right in the front there, is not going back to that.
To prison or to addiction? Both. Because I know one comes with the other. You know, but I mean, like now, you couldn't pay me to put a needle in my arm these days with all the fentanyl and mm-hmm. all this stuff. It was different when I was using. There was, wasn't all this. If you got a hot batch or something, it was just because it was pure heroin. It wasn't because there was something else in there. Nowadays, like I tell everybody, it's Russian roulette out there every time. If somebody had said that to you when you were at your lowest, do you think you would have cared? What's that? If somebody had said, you don't know what's in this batch, there might be fentanyl. It wouldn't even... If someone OD'd somewhere, we raced to the person that had that sold it, trying to get it. Mm, really? So, yeah. It was, everybody wanted the purest, the strongest, you know. Someone OD'd, you knew it was strong, so it's, it's an insane mindset to live in. What becomes normal is just completely insane to me now. You know, I look back at things I did that I thought were acceptable and normal behavior. If I saw someone doing that stuff now, I mean, I I don't know what. You've been out of prison for 13 years. Are you still scared? Yeah. Yeah, that's, I wouldn't, I would not go back. It's just not something I want to do. I don't want to give up my freedom again. And that's the main part was losing my freedom. How do you balance your freedom with your need for structure and discipline? I mean, now, I know now that if I want to go do something or I can do it, but at the same time, I know I still need to stick to some sort of routine every day. And I need to stay in touch with people because I'll self-isolate. And uh, that's when I start self-isolating and stuff, I know I'm start, I know what's coming. I'm going to start getting depressed and, but now with my freedom and structure and everything, I, I'm not so structured now like I was before when I first got out. You know, I'm able to relax some of it, but I still try to have a routine every day. You know, and it really hasn't affected my freedom. I don't feel like I'm in prison, you know. For a while, it was tough. Like, I did really feel like when I was staying with my family when I first got out, you know, there was times I felt like I was right back in there, you know. But as time goes, it eases. I find ways to structure myself that doesn't feel like I'm putting boundaries on myself, I guess. Have you talked to those police officers? Again? No, I have not. I couldn't even remember their names if I tried. What would you say to them if you could? Thank you. I'd thank them a million times and hope they keep doing what they're doing. You know, 
if we had more people like that on the force, and I tell them, I, I tell my story, I tell the police that too. I tell them, you know, the simplest act can send somebody off on a tear or save their lives. You know, so I said the smallest act of kindness, you know, compassion, just asking someone if they need help, you know, can change everything for them. A lot of people never had that in their lives. If you could describe your life while you were in active addiction or while you were using, in three words, what would they be? It would be complete, total insanity is what it was. It's, yeah, I shouldn't be here. There's no way I should be here. Overdoses and accidents and just survive things I shouldn't have. But now I give back, you know. Maybe if I was younger and someone like me talked to me, the way I try to talk to people, it might have changed, you know. It at least would have put a, planted a seed in my head about the options I had to change, you know, and that I could do it, and it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, you know. So now that's, that's what keeps me going now is trying to help others and tell my story, you know, and trying to get the police and stuff to understand you know, that addicts aren't terrible, horrible people, you know, that they're made out to be in movies and stuff and TV shows and that they're just human beings with it. They're struggling at the time. So if you could use three words to describe your life now, what would they be? Be positive. Uh, I'm trying to think of something. Oh, I'm positive, um, changing, and freedom, I guess, would be three words to describe life now it sounds like you have freedom in like a both physical sense and like a metaphorical sense. oh yeah definitely mm -hmm. definitely yeah the, you know the person I was back then I wouldn't even know that person now you know how much I've grown over the years and not just in recovery and all that, just as a human being, you know, they say you, you stop maturing when you start using drugs, you know, I've been 14 for a long time, you know, it's starting to catch up to me now, stuff I find fun and acceptable now, I'd have laughed at when I was using and all that back then. Now I just, I like helping people. I like, I like talking to people about addiction and stuff. I've never hid what I've done. 
you know, I've never shied away from it. If you don't like it, that's okay. Deal with it. You don't have to talk to me. When you were using, and you, in the very beginning, when we were talking, you described that feeling of feeling the best you could. Mm -hmm. Now that you're in recovery, you have that, but in a different way. How is that for you now? I've learned that that feeling I got when I was using isn't normal. You know, yeah, you have days where you feel like that, but it's okay not to feel like that every day. You know, you're going to have days where you're down and it's okay. You know, it's not forever. And um, that was one of the biggest things for me was realizing that having a bad day is okay. You know, I don't have to run out and use the, you know, the, you know, the next day, an hour later or so, you know, everything can change for the better. You know, it's what I do with it. I'm in control, you know, instead of the drugs being in control now. I mean, just, it's constant growth now for me. You know, once I opened up myself to the possibility of, growing and not trying to hold on to my past so tight and letting it define me and stuff. I, uh, I've had a lot of growth in this past couple of years, really the last year and a half, I think, since I started with the peer support stuff and Stephanie Hoover and Roxanne and all of them. It's been great for me. It really helps me out. Keeps me going too, you know? Mm-hmm. talking to people about their addiction or whatever they're struggling with. It doesn't have to be drugs. It could be anything. You know, just be going through a tough time at their job. I've learned that. I've learned everybody's struggling. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I was using, and it was to think that that's how I was supposed to feel all the time. And if I didn't feel like that, I had to use, like I said earlier, it, it was insane. You know, but that, that was just what I knew. It's what I understood. This is why they do that. Oh, okay. The older crowd. Now I get it. I think that there's a myth too in society that we're supposed to be happy all the time. Definitely. And if we're not happy, something's wrong with us. I agree. And then there's a pill to fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, or a per- a thing we can buy that we can. Yep. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of, I know this is going to sound strange, but almost shame if you feel bad. Oh, like, I get it. Like what's wrong with me? I don't yeah. feel great today. Um, I, my family drives me nuts like that. Uh, I'll talk to them on the phone. I'm real in contact with them now every day. You know, they've always been there for me. Never walked away completely. You know, kept their distance when they had to for their own safety, you know. And, uh, but now I'll go over there and it'll just be a bad day. I'll be in a funk or something. And my mom starts freaking out. What's wrong? You know, and I'm like, it's just a bad day, you know. (laughs) She gets worried about me now when I have bad days. My brother and I talk sometimes. It's nice to be able to talk to somebody and say you're having a bad day and that person doesn't freak out. They just say, yeah, it's a bad day. Or try to fix it. Mm-hmm. Just let me be, you know, 
if I talk about it. A lot of times it's just me wanting to, needing to talk about something that's going on. And if I talk about it, you know, it takes the power away from it and it's no longer overwhelming me and I'm able to move through it and on to the next, you know. I imagine for people who are in the place you were 13 or 15 years ago, being able to hear your story and see where you are now must be very inspiring for them and give them hope. Like you said, even if it, even if it's, it isn't that day they choose to do something. Oh yeah. There's a seed planted yep. that it's possible. Yeah. I have some friends still that knew me back then. Not a lot. So a few around here that knew me from when I used and they see me now and what I do now. And they're just like, it's insane, man. You know, I never thought you'd be here where you're at now doing what you do. Yeah, me either. You know, but uh, when I was in Asheville and they started grooming me to be an employee at the treatment center, that's when I knew, you know, and this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to help others, you know, especially younger guys and stuff. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter who you are. I'll talk to whoever wants to talk to me about what I've been through and what they're going through. I can identify with it and not judge and just let them get it out. I think that's key. I was talking to a detective whose brother was a heroin user. And he was talking about just when his brother was able to talk to him without judgment. It just seemed to open that, that conversation. Yep. It definitely does. So I've gone to counselors, substance abuse counselors, mental health counselors, and they have made me feel so bad about myself sometimes that I would just stop talking to them. I'd just come in and just answer their questions one word, you know. What would you say to a counselor? If a counselor was listening or a mental health professional, what would you say to them about working with somebody in addiction? That to let them be where they are, you know, if they're pissed off, let them be pissed off. You can't fix it. You know, let them talk about it. Let them get it out. Sometimes you just need to be a sounding board. You know, sometimes there is no action to take, you know, and they, we don't have all the answers. And so many people just tell me what I need to do. I mean, that's, tell me what I need to do, <laughs> you know, or to tell me to snap out of it or get over it or, you know. It's ironic that I'm listening to you talk about the counselors doing that. And then it's ironic that the police officers were the people who didn't do that. Yeah. And who just asked if he needed anything. I said that was the first time in my life I'd ever ever had that happen to me. They let you just be where you were. Exactly. And when I was ready, they let me be. And they were there for me when I needed it. The world works in mysterious ways, let me tell you. <laughs> well, I appreciate... I, I've 
it's it's weird to say I've enjoyed hearing your story, but listening to your story has added so much, I guess, nuance to my own understanding. And I, I really, like, it makes me want to go out and look at people almost in a different way. So I appreciate you sharing that. I enjoy it. I really do. I, uh, Stephanie Hoover is the one that got me into doing my story. And uh, the first time I did it, it was like a train wreck. Man. <laughs> it was horrible. I felt so bad. I felt bad for the people that had to listen to it. But uh, no, I enjoy it a lot now. You know, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening to Recovery is Possible. Sponsored by the Sandhills Opioid Response Consortium. For more information on treatment and recovery, visit our website at firsthealth.org slash recovery resources, where you can find additional resources, connect with a peer support specialist, and much more.